Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I also have From John to Justin, my other podcast, which releases every single Friday. I do both these podcasts full-time, all the writing, the research, editing, everything. And every dollar you give helps keep it all going. So, I really do appreciate it. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. I've grown up with dogs my entire life. I've had big dogs, small dogs, and many different breeds of dogs. I love dogs. Right now, I have a Newfoundland Irish Setter Cross named Boromir, who I call Boris. He is my best friend, and I am proud to be his person. If you love dogs as much as I do, and especially if you love Jack Russell Terriers, then the Jack Russell Parents Podcast for Dog Lovers is the show for you. Each Monday, this show explores hilarious, humbling, heartfelt, and harrowing stories that only a dog parent can relate to. It doesn't stop there, though. Weeks can be long for all of us, and they help kick off the weekend with their Zoomisodes every Thursday, but you're a fast-paced mini-episode highlighting new and exciting stories from dog-centric entertainment and social media. And if you know what a Zoomie is, well, you probably have a dog in your life. Find the podcast on all podcast platforms or click the link in my show notes. The history of Fort Capel dates back long before Europeans arrived in Canada, as most places in the country do. The land was primarily occupied by the Cree in the Saltu, and they lived a nomadic life following herds of bison, as well as other game. Moving with the seasons, they would often come through the lush and bountiful area of future Fort Capel. The story of the name of the community comes from the indigenous as well. Legend states that a young indigenous man was canoeing home when he heard someone calling his name. He asked who was calling him, yelling, Capel. A reply from the hills came saying, Capel, and he realized that it was his echo. When he returned home, he found the woman he was going to marry had died the previous evening and in her dying breath had said his name. From this, the Capel Valley gets its name. It actually comes from the legend of the Capel Valley, which was written by the indigenous woman Pauline Johnson. She made her legend around something reported by Daniel Harmon, a Métis trader from a century previous who said that when he was in the region at the turn of the 19th century, 
he would often hear a voice calling him in the valley, and he would respond, Capel. It was at Capel that Treaty 4 would be signed in 1874. The Cree and the Saltu would sign over 75,000 sections of South Saskatchewan to Canada, and in attendance at the signing was Lieutenant Governor Morris of Manitoba, David Lair, the Minister of the Interior, and several Indigenous chiefs, and W.J. Christie, the former chief factor of the Hudson's Bay Company. The Canadian delegation was led to the signing from Fort Garry by 100 red-coated militiamen. The Indigenous held a large powwow before the ceremony with 2,000 to 3,000 Indigenous gathered, and the treaty would officially be signed on September 15, 1874, after one week of delay due to objections the Indigenous had to the treaty. Today, a monument is situated in Fort Capel to honour the signing of this treaty, and it was erected in its current spot in 1915. In 1801, the Northwest Company built a trading post in the area, but it would only last for four years before it was abandoned. In 1813, a second fort closer to current Whitewood was built by the Hudson's Bay Company, which would last from 1813 to 1819. The area would again become more important in 1852 when another Hudson Bay Company post was established, along with an Anglican mission. That mission survives to this day as the St. John the Evangelist Anglican Parish Church. This Hudson's Bay Company post would only last for two years until 1854. The last of the posts would be established from 1864 to 1911, and it was here that Treaty 4 was signed and the Northwest Mounted Police arrived. With this post, the future community of Fort Capel would spring up, and the fort would eventually close, but it is honoured to this day in the community with a plaque. And at the site of the plaque, there is also one building that remains, which today houses a museum that highlights the history of the area and the importance of the fort that helped shape the Canadian West. The legendary Chief Sitting Bull would visit the mission in the late 1870s as his people were being starved out of Canada by the federal government. He had heard a large shipment of flour was coming to the mission, and needing food for his people, the story goes that he took off his blanket and asked how much flour it would buy. He then traded blankets, ponies, and more for flour to help his people. By the 1880s, farming was becoming more important in the area, and that brought up farmers from the United States, Eastern Canada, and Europe to the area to pick up homesteads. A post office would open in 1880, creating a new link to the outside world for residents who were starting to settle there. One interesting part of the history of that time is preserved to this day in the community. The Touchwood Hills Trail Provincial Historic Site is a preserved patch of prairie along the trail that settlers took to and through the area. Along this trail in 1882, a segment of the Dominion Telegraph was constructed, and it was along this trail that General Frederick Middleton and his militia travelled on their way to Batoche to fight in the Northwest Resistance of 1885 against Louis Riel. While most parts of this trail, including the grooves created by wagon wheels, are long gone, they are still preserved at this provincial historic site, and even 125 years later, you can still walk the same path that settlers took so long ago and see the very wagon wheel ruts they created. One thing I love about podcasts is the amazing stories that we can learn and the things that we can learn from those stories. And that brings me to King of the World, a seven-part podcast series about American life in the post-9-11 world, hosted by Shah Jahan Khan. America after 9-11, living in a post-9-11 America. Phrases like these have become part of our cultural vocabulary. And, in a way, it makes sense. It was a day that changed everything, both for Americans and people around the world, including here in Canada. But for those who saw themselves as even remotely Muslim, 9-11 did more than they could possibly imagine. 
Whether they liked it or not, that was the day they all became part of the Muslim world or American Muslim community, for better or worse, and they didn't really get to choose what that even meant. Now, 20 years later, with the help of experts, victims, and friends, Khan is piercing together how things went so wrong for so many. King of the World is a seven-part series that follows his journey through addiction, identity, creativity, and what it means to belong as a Muslim in America in the 20 years after 9-11. It's a fascinating story, a fascinating podcast, and one you should check out. King of the World can be found wherever you get your podcasts, and you can also find a link to King of the World in my show notes. While the Canadian Pacific Railway was being completed through the area, General Frederick Middleton would arrive at Fort Capel in 1885 with his soldiers, ready to take on Louis Riel at Batoche. At the time, Fort Capel was the westernmost extreme of the railway, and it was from this point that Middleton and his men would journey on foot. Middleton would have Captain French, a member of the Northwest Mounted Police, raise a mounted force at Fort Capel, and this mounted troop would join the 10th Royal Grenadiers from Toronto and the Winnipeg Field Battery to create the West Bank Column that would march to Batoche to take part in the fighting against the Métis. Fort Capel was also important enough at this time that it was in the running to succeed Battleford as the territorial capital of the Northwest Territories, but in the end, it would lose out to Regina. In 1884, the Capel Indian Residential School was established and operated by the Roman Catholic Church and the Grey Nuns. In its first year, 15 students were enrolled at the school, and it would remain a boys' school until 1887 when accommodation for female students was built. By 1886, the school had 86 students, and by 1914, there were 280. Indigenous students were put in classes for half the day, and then spent the rest of the day learning domestic and agricultural pursuits. English was the only language of instruction, and the Indigenous children were not allowed to celebrate their culture, or even speak their language at the school. Most reports stated that the education at the school was subpar at best, and chores and labor often took precedence to any education the students had received, as with nearly all residential schools, the students also suffered abuse at the school, both physical and sexual, which were highlighted in a 1999 lawsuit by several students who had survived the school but endured years of mental trauma for what they had experienced. The school would finally close in 1969. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExploreNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call 1-866-285-2253. In 1897, a Hudson's Bay Company store was built in the community. 
This two-story brick and stone building was part of the central business district of the community, and today it is the oldest surviving retail store building of the Hudson's Bay Company in all of Canada. The building was designed by Chief Factor Archibald MacDonald, and it was touted as the finest store west of Winnipeg. Today, the store still stands, and you can visit it and relive a part of Canadian history when visiting Fort Capel. On November 23, 1902, a man named Edward William Shore was born in the community. He would begin playing minor hockey in the area and eventually find his way to Edmonton to play for the Eskimos as a defenseman. Called the Edmonton Express, Shore quickly established himself as a highly skilled hockey player. In 1926, he would debut with the Boston Bruins in the NHL, where he scored 12 goals and had 6 assists in his first season. This would begin a legendary career for Shore, who would go on to play until 1943, winning four Hart trophies as the MVP of the league. Only Wayne Gretzky and Gordy Howe won it more times. Known for being a bruiser on the ice, he would end the career of Ace Bailey with a hit from behind, which would result in the creation of the All-Star Game in order to raise money for Bailey and his family. Shore would win the Stanley Cup in 1929 and 1939, and was named an NHL First All-Star Team member in 1931, 1932, 1933, 1935, 1936, 1938, and 1939. After his retirement, he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1947. That same year, his number two was retired by the Boston Bruins. In 1998, Hockey News ranked him as the 10th greatest hockey player of all time, and in 2017, he was named one of the 100 greatest NHL players of all time. He would pass away in 1985 at the age of 82. You've seen every major league hockey player since the 20s. Can you, I'm sure you've been asked this before, but can you name the greatest of them all, in your opinion? Well, of course, it depends entirely uh, on Pierre on the basis of where they play and what position they play. Uh, I, I'd have to lean almost to Eddie Shore. Really? With, with a, a quick answer, if you know what I mean. Uh, I think he was perhaps one of the most colorful hockey players I ever saw. And he was rough, tough, and nasty. Uh, every, uh, I shouldn't say everybody. A lot of people hated him. And he had color. He had about everything a hockey player should have. And uh, perhaps if I thought about it a little longer, I might come up with somebody else. But I, on the spur of the moment, I would say sure. In 1909, the Fort Capel Indian Hospital was created by the federal government to provide a 50-bed place for the treatment of tuberculosis. The hospital would operate until 2004 as a rural hospital until it was replaced with the modern and culturally significant All Nations Healing Hospital. Today, the hospital is a federal heritage property for its role in providing medical care to the indigenous of the area for over half a century. In 1911, the Grand Trunk Pacific Railway Station was built in the community. This second-class station served the community for decades until it was discontinued as a train station in 1962 due to a decrease in passenger train traffic. The station by this point had become a landmark in the community, and for that reason, it was not torn down. In fact, it stands to this very day and now serves as the community meeting place and tourist information booth. In 1983, it was made a municipal heritage property to ensure the structure would be enjoyed by generations of residents and tourists for years to come. On February 20, 1941, Buffy St. Marie was born in Cuyapal Valley on the Piapot 75 Reserve. Raised in Wakefield in the United States, she returned back to Canada to attend a powwow at the Reserve. 
and she would go on to become one of the most prominent activists on indigenous issues in North America. By the early 1960s, she was an emerging musician, joining Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and Leonard Cohen, who were becoming part of a new wave of Canadian musicians finding success. She would release her debut album, It's My Way, in 1964. Next, a singer with a quality all her own, Buffy St. Marie. Buffy was born in Saskatchewan of Cree parents, but she went to Massachusetts as a young child. We still like to think of her as a Canadian. Hi. Hi. Is this your first trip to Toronto? No, I've been in Toronto, oh, I guess three times. Three times, huh? What about singing? When did you start? Well, I was composing all my life. Started composing when I was about four, when my parents bought a second-hand piano, and I learned how to play right away and made up my own music and songs. And then when I went to college, people encouraged me to sing the songs I'd always sung to myself, and more and more they encouraged me, and more and more I sang them. And then I finished my last exam at the University of Mass and went to New York and sang there in a club in Greenwich Village. And <laughs> everything happened, and I started recording, and I got three records. Do you find the pleasure in singing is partly because you write your own material? Yes. Yeah, I, I don't think that I'd enjoy doing, um, like, all of somebody else's songs. I wouldn't enjoy that. When you write a song, do you uh, write the music first and then the words, or do you have an idea that you want to say and it just comes all together? That's right. Uh, the latter way. Uh, I write music, you know, like concertos, and I write poems. But I never set a poem to music. From 1976 to 1981, she appeared on Sesame Street on a regular basis, helping to teach children about the indigenous. In 1977, she would breastfeed her first child, Dakota Star Blanket Wolfchild, on an episode which was believed to be the first time breastfeeding ever aired on television. In 1983, she became the first indigenous person to win an Oscar when her song, Up Where We Belong, won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. Her music has been covered by Elvis Presley, Cher, Donovan, Barbara Streisand, Janis Joplin, and Neil Diamond. She's a member of the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, has received 11 honorary degrees, was awarded the Order of Canada, has won five Juno Awards, a Gemini Award, the Governor General's Performing Arts Award, and the Alan Waters Humanitarian Award. Fort Capel has been honoured not once, not twice, but three times with a visit from a member of the royal family, something many larger places can't even say. Queen Elizabeth II and her husband, Prince Philip, arrived in the Fort Capel area to see the railway station specially painted on one side to greet the Queen. Hundreds of people came out to see the royal couple during their whistle-stop tour of the Canadian prairies on their way to attend the Commonwealth Games in Edmonton. At one point, an old farmer was on his tractor and he saw the Queen's train approaching. He stopped his vehicle, stood on a seat and tipped his hat to her, and then went back to farming. In Fort Capel, the Queen and Prince Philip were greeted by Indigenous dancers, while Mayor D.C. Cockwell wore a Western suit and Stetson to greet the couple. The royal couple then exchanged pleasantries with members of the crowd, and the Queen was presented with a bouquet of flowers. In 1987, the Queen and Prince Philip would come to Fort Capel once again, but this time they were only passing through and there was no formal ceremony for the arrival of the royal couple. In August of 1994, Prince Edward, the youngest son of Prince Elizabeth, visited Fort Capel, 
And this was the second time that the prince came to the community, having arrived in 1978 with his parents, where he took part in a trail ride. Prince Edward would watch powwow and meet with local indigenous leaders on this visit. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the community of Fort Capel. On Saturday, I'm looking at the Red Green show, including my interview with Steve Smith, Mr. Red Green himself, and next week we're going to look at Brandon, Manitoba. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to canadaehx.com and clicking donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara-Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Thanks, we'll see you again next time.